Um, thanks again for being here. Uh, if you are new, um, I am DL. I'm the lead pastor here at Harvest. It is um, my joy to welcome you here and to say thanks for, for being here um, on Easter Sunday, uh, Resurrection Sunday. Um, such an important day. I know we've all, um, in all of our lives, we have important days, days that have changed our lives, days that we look back on and say, well, that was a momentous day in my life. Maybe for some of you, it was when you graduated um, high school. Um, maybe for some, it was the day you got that acceptance letter into the college of your dreams. That day would forever change your life. Uh, for those who are married, maybe um, the day you got married, um, the day you had your first child. Um, there are days that will forever leave us changed, days that will mark us and brand us and say, from this day forward, we've never been the same. What is it that makes a day special? What is it that makes a day great? What is it that makes a day important? Uh, what is it that in the collective psyche of our nation's soul, what makes 9-11 such a historic day, such an important day? What makes the election of President Obama, his first term, what made that such a huge event in our nation's history? Uh, you can judge the size of a ship by the size of the wake it leaves behind. And you can judge the greatness of a day by the number of lives that are changed as a result of that day. So by that rubric, when it comes to talking about great days, there's probably no greater day ever in the history of the world than this day that we celebrate today, Easter Sunday. The resurrection of Jesus Christ, if that's how we judge the greatness of a day by the number of lives that are touched and by the number of uh, people that are changed by it, then there's no greater day than what we celebrate today, Easter Sunday. So what I want to do today is I want to read from John chapter 20. This is an eyewitness account of one who was there that first Easter Sunday, that resurrection day when Jesus Christ rose from the dead. We're going to read John chapter 20, starting in verse 24. But let me set the table by talking about what happened at the first uh, in the first part of John chapter 20. So John was written, um, he basically wrote this history, and then later in time, these people added chapters and verses in order to help us to understand and to find different verses. And in the beginning of chapter 20, uh, Peter, John, Mary Magdalene, some other women, um, uh, other people go to the tomb in order to see Jesus, to see uh, if he's, you know, to embalm him and on all these things. And when they get there, they realize that the tomb, there was a stone that was in front of the tomb to secure it. The stone was rolled away. They walked into the tomb, and there was no body there. There was only some folded grave clothes that Jesus was wearing. So immediately, the first thought is, well, what would your first thought be? You go to a funeral, and you walk up, open cast, you walk up, and, and the person is not there. Your first thought is not, they raised from the dead. That wouldn't be my first thought. My first thought would be somebody took his body. And wouldn't that be your first thought? Someone took her body out of the casket, and that's why they're not there. So here's Jesus. They go to the tomb. He's not there. The first thought in their mind is not, oh, he must have risen from the dead. That was nobody's thought. Right? No one ever thought that. Why? Because even though it was 2,000 years ago, people in those days were not stupid. <laughs> because when people die, they die. That's it. It's kind of the way it is today, right? So no one is thinking, oh, my gosh, he's risen from the dead. What do they think? He's gone. You know, it, it's hard for us to believe this today, but if I could explain uh, this great um, British theologian named N.T. Wright, historian, he talks about the culture of the time when Jesus was living. And here's what he says. He says, in those days, the dominant cultures surrounding Jesus' death, it was the Greco-Roman culture, right? Roman Empire. The Greco-Roman culture, it never crossed their mind that somebody would die and then rise again. You know what? Well, here's why. Because they live, you guys know this, if you studied anything about philosophy or, or whatever it is that Greeks are. 
dualism, right? Body and soul. Okay, body, bad, soul, good, right? So what is, the, what, is the, what is a human body and what is our soul? The body is the prison for the soul. And when you die, your soul gets released and freed, right? Free like a bird. So you fly away. That's what, that's what our body is. So when death happens, body and soul are separated. And in the Greco-Roman mind, for them, one that has been freed to come back, to an evil body would never cross their mind. That's not only unthinkable, unconscionable, it is unrealistic for them to even think in those categories. So in the dominant culture, the Greco-Roman culture, no one would ever think of a resurrection. That doesn't make any sense. Well, obviously the Jews were thinking about a resurrection where they know they weren't. The Jews in the Jewish mind, they believed in a resurrection not as an individual event, but as one, something that happens at the very end of time when God renews everything and it would happen with everybody at one time. That's why if you know anything about um, the story of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. Okay, Lazarus was a, a, a fellow who had died. He had two sisters named Mary and Martha. And Jesus says to Martha, he says, look, Martha, your brother is going to rise again. And she says, I know he's going to rise again. He'll rise again on the last day. Okay, what is she talking? She's talking about the dominant Jewish thought that resurrection is going to happen one day at the end of time when God makes all things new, but it's going to be everybody all at one time. So an individual resurrection was never even in the mind of people. Right, so here in, into that context, you've got this situation. The body is gone, so their thought is immediately, either we went to the wrong tomb or the body's gone. Someone stole the body. Never crossed their mind what Jesus had said, that on the third day I'm going to rise again, because they had no idea what he was talking about. So John chapter 20 begins with them going and saying, oh my gosh, the tomb is empty. And then over a period of days, Jesus shows up and shows himself to these people, to Mary, to these women, to the apostles, all uh, 12 disciples, right? One of them, Judas, committed suicide, 11 disciples. All of them were there except for one guy, Thomas. Thomas wasn't there. But to the rest of the disciples, Jesus shows up. And the disciples go to Thomas and like, hey, dude, we saw Jesus. But Thomas, because he wasn't there, doubts the reality of what they had seen and said. That's what we're going to pick up. And we're going to talk about how the first Easter changed the life of Thomas, changed the rest of the world, and how Easter can change your life also. John chapter 20, verse 24. We're going to read 24 through 31. This is God's word. It says, Now Thomas called Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, you know what? Unless I see the nail marks in his hands, put my finger where the nails were, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe it. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. And though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands? Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. And Jesus told him, blessed, uh, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. This is God's word. Right, so what's happening here? You know, if, even if you haven't been to church, you've probably heard this, uh, this phrase, doubting Thomas. Okay? This is where we get this. Thomas was one of the original 12 disciples, spent three and a half years with Jesus. 
And Jesus rises from the dead, shows up to all these disciples, says, yo, I'm here. They go and they tell Thomas, and he's like, dude, I can't believe it unless I see it. At the beginning of this passage, Thomas is a doubting, fearful skeptic. But at the end of the passage, he's filled with hope and faith and trust. And testimony would later say that he would go and he would give his life in India, building churches in order that Jesus would be made known. He was killed for his faith in this resurrected Lord Jesus. So what happened? How did he go from doubting skeptic to a courageous and faithful believer who gave up everything in order to testify that this is true? What happened? I want to talk about the journey from where he is to hope. So that wherever we might be today, we might begin or continue this journey, and at the end, we can get to a place of hope. This is what we look at today. The first thing that Thomas did, that first step he took, was that he expressed his doubts. So here they come, and he says, you know what? Verse 25 at the end, he says, unless I see the nail marks in his hands, put my finger where the nails were, put my hand into his side, I will not believe it. There's two kinds of doubters. Yeah, I know a lot of times we, you know, Thomas gets a bad rap and we're like, dude, Thomas, you're so, just believe what your friends say. And that's what I used to think when I was reading this, when Jesus was a flannel board dude and, and the disciples and here's Thomas and he's just like confused. He's got a question mark over his head. I used to think, why can't you believe it? Just believe it, doubting Thomas. There's a couple kinds of doubters. There's one kind of doubter who no matter what you say, no matter, regardless of the evidence that's given, you have your mind already made up. Say, so you know what? I'm not going to believe it. I'm not going to believe it. Like this guy who, um, I don't know if you heard the story about this guy. He was just a kind of a Debbie Downer. He was a, a guy, so he was a kind of a Douglas doubter, I guess, but um, always a, a, a downer kind of a guy. And whatever anybody would say, he'd be like, no, nah, I don't believe it. I don't believe it. It's not that great. People would say, oh, my gosh, I've got this amazing TV show. And he's like, I wasn't that good. Or, hey, look at this magic trick. He's like, oh, I was all right. I could do that. So he's just kind of like that. He's just kind of ruining everybody's party. Everybody's like, oh, this is amazing. And he's like, you know what? My mind's already made up. I, whatever you say, I'm not going to believe. It doesn't matter what you say. So he had this friend, and his friend wanted to show him this amazing new dog that he had bought. They bought this dog. And he taught this dog how to walk on water. Okay, this is amazing. And wouldn't you be excited if you, if you saw a dog that could walk on water? And so he said to his friend, he said, hey, yo, yo, let's go fishing together. Let's go duck hunting together. So they go out to this lake, and they see some bunch of duck flying, and they shoot it. The duck falls onto the water, and he's like, yeah, check this out. And he says, dog, go. And the dog dives into the water, and he starts running, walking on the water. He gets the duck in his mouth, and he comes running back. And the dude's like, look, and he's just looking at the guy. The guy's just kind of like, whatever. This goes on throughout the day, shooting ducks, catching it. Dog runs out, comes back, nothing wet except for his paws. At the end of the day, they've been doing this for like eight hours. The guy who owns a dog looks at the, his friend and says, don't you notice anything about my dog? And the guy looked at the dog. He's like, stupid dog. He doesn't even know how to swim. <laughs> there are some kind of people who, regardless of evidence, right, their mind is already made up. Regardless of the evidence, their mind's already made up. I don't believe it. Thomas wasn't a doubter like that. There's another kind of doubter who says, you know what? There's something so important that I can't just take somebody else's word for it. Something so important. And Thomas is like, dude, I want to believe what you have to say. God, trust you. We've been doing life together for three and a half years. I want to believe what you have to say. I want to believe that Jesus isn't dead, that he's alive. I want to believe that stuff. But this is so important but I just can't take your word for it. Like, I need to see it for myself. And so he says, unless I see, I don't think I can believe. And he begins expressing 
his doubts. And I think the reason why Thomas is in the Bible is for people like you and me who a lot of times have doubts. You ever have doubts as to whether this could really happen or not? Could this really be true? Like, that God would send his son, like that God would wrap himself in flesh, just like you and me, that he would bleed like us. He would get hangnails. He'd go to the bathroom. He would burp and pass, that he would, he would wrap himself in, in frail humanity like that, that he would do something like that. And for, for the one reason, so that he could go and be a sacrificial lamb to die for the sins of the world. Could this really be true? I don't know if you ever have doubts like that, but I think Thomas is written in the Bible to show us that it's okay to have doubts. And when he doubted Jesus and say, Thomas, you just believe, you silly. Don't you know it's me? Why didn't you believe before I came to you? But he allowed Thomas to doubt. I think a lot, of re- a lot of times the reason why we don't doubt is because we think that reflects weakness in our faith. But Thomas is telling us the exact opposite. He's ta- telling us that faith is absolutely, absolutely compatible with doubt. Because when we begin to doubt, imagine if Thomas came, Thomas just takes his 10 friends' word for it, says, okay, I believe that Jesus rose from the dead. And he goes out telling people, hey, Jesus rose from the dead. They take a sword to his throat and say, look, you really believe Jesus died uh, and rose again? If he hasn't seen it, then he's not going to die for that. If it's just hearsay, if somebody just told him. But when we begin to doubt, we begin to question our faith. Doubt is the seedbed of a stronger faith. That's why so many people who are filled with faith, some of the most powerful uh, faith-filled teachers of the word of God were some of the most, most... Biggest doubters and skeptics at one point, but they begin to challenge their doubts, begin to think about, begin to express their doubts in order that they might get to a place where their faith became strong. That's what Thomas is all about. As he began expressing his doubts, said, I don't know if this could be true in that place because he was honest with his doubts. Jesus could meet him in that place. But if we don't express our doubts, then God can't meet us in our place of doubt. A lot of us, our doubts fall into one of three different categories. Some of us, the, the issue is, is an issue of content. I cannot really believe that a God could come down to the earth. That's, maybe that's, I can't believe it. I can't believe that a virgin would give birth to a child. I can't believe that someone would rise from the dead and then ascend into heaven. I can't believe that. If your issues are about content, that's, that's great. Express those doubts. Because honest questions will be met by honest answers. Maybe your issues aren't about content, but it's about commitment. I won't believe this. Why? Because I don't want to believe it to be true. Because if I believe this to be true, then it changes everything about my life. Because if Jesus Christ really rose from the dead, then he's the Lord of all. He is what he said he is. He is who he said he is. Then it's got to change the way that I live. And I can't do whatever I want to do anymore. I can't be the Lord of my own life. I can't live however I want to live. I have to surrender to his teaching. And I have to begin to understand that who he is is who he said he is, not just because that's who he is, but because this is the best way for us to live. This is how we're meant to live. Maybe our issues about, are about commitment. I think I could believe this to be true, but I want to keep on living the way that I want to live life. A lot of our doubts come in the area of not content, but about commitment, and that's okay too. As you begin to express that to God, he'll take that and he'll work with it. Others of us, our issue is not about content or commitment, it's about the community. I want to believe this to be true, but you know what? The people who believe it, I don't like the way that they live. I've been hurt by the church. I've been hurt by Christians. That's, that's not cool. That's not cool because that's not what Jesus intended the church to be. But if that's your doubt, that's okay to express that to God as well. 
But sometimes we say, you know what, I don't believe Christianity can't be true, not because it's a content. We ask a content question, but our hearts are doubting a community question. I can't believe this. We say it's incredulous to me, but really the doubt deals with the people of God. All this to say, if, as long as we're honest and we can express our doubts, right, God will work with us. And he can meet with us where we are. In fact, the first people that Jesus went to after the resurrection were people who were jacked up like Thomas. They were doubters. They were the disillusioned. They were the discouraged. They were the depressed. They were the down and out. They were the disqualified, the ones who betrayed Jesus. And these are the people that he goes to. Why? Because he meets us where we are. And he meets us where we are. That's all he's trying to say. So the first thing I want to encourage us to do as we journey from where we are to a journey to hope is that we could express our doubts. The second thing that Thomas did, not only did he express his doubts, but he examined the evidence here. He didn't just say, you know what? I, have, I can't believe it. But he moved towards Jesus, and when Jesus had come and touched, he did. He moved towards us so that he could examine the evidence. Why? Because, again, there's too much at stake for him to just doubt. There's too much at stake for him to just believe it blindly. So he moved towards it to examine the evidence, because if this is true, then this is the greatest news that the world could ever know. That if Jesus rose from the dead, then the promise of God is that he who rose from the dead promises that we won't have to die forever, but that we too can rise from the dead. That the same power that raised Jesus from the dead, it talks about in the Bible, is the same power that raises us from the dead if we put our faith in Jesus. That's why it wasn't enough for him to say, I don't believe this to be true. I need to see it to be. He began to examine the evidence. I think uh, most of us have Facebook accounts. I do. Last week I was on Facebook. And I was uh, going through my news feed, and my wife, Olivia, said, Olivia Kim has updated her status. Right? So I looked down at my no- news feed, not my news feed, my news feed. And it said, Olivia has claimed a $450 gift certificate from Costco. And it said, after it's 79 left. And my immediate thought was like, you silly. Why would you do that? Everyone knows these things are fake. Underneath that, someone had, one of her friends had commented, said, any success? And Olive had commented back, nope, <laughs> with a sad face underneath it. I got home that day and I said, Olive, why did you do that? You know these things are never true. Anytime it's just free MacBook Pro and they show the picture of like stacks of the, oh, we need to get rid of these because we don't like the color or we're rolling out a new one or free iPad giveaway. There's like 200 and if you like this status and pass it on to 50 friends, you won't, not only will you not die, but you get a free iPad. All these things are fake. We know this. So I said to Olive, why did you do that? And she said, well... If it were true, you would be thanking me. And I said, you know what? You're absolutely right. Because if, really, the benefits are that high, it's worth checking out, isn't it? It's worth at least checking out. Because what happens if we get in the mail something from Costco? I'm like, oh, my gosh, what a fool I was. We're not clicking on it when it said there's 79 left. As incredulous as it might be, if that's the reward offered to us, hey, might as well check it out, right? That's what Thomas is saying. I've got these doubts, but it's not enough just to doubt. And so he moved towards, he began to examine the evidence. He put his finger, he, he put his finger where Jesus, where the nails went through his, and, and his hands and his side, and Jesus showed him these things. All this to say that contrary to what you may have heard, Christianity is not a blind leap of faith. Okay, Christianity is not a blind leap of faith. If you are any other religion, Okay? If you're a Buddhist, a Muslim, a Hindu, a skeptic, an atheist, you never believe any of these things happen. If you were where Thomas was and you saw what Thomas saw, 
then your response would be the exact same thing. What, what am I saying? I'm, I'm saying this isn't like some Jewish thing that people made up. The Christian religion is rooted in a historical event of a real person who lived and died and rose again on high. He opened a way so that the world could live again. It's not a blind leap of faith. When Jesus showed up to Thomas and Thomas said, let me put my hand in your, in, in your let me put, touch your, your scars in your side. Jesus didn't put his hands behind his back and say, Thomas, ha, 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 you stupid, just believe. He said, here, touch and see. Right? There's verifiable evidence here. Examine the evidence. And so he did. Because Christianity is not only spiritually and emotionally satisfying. I will say with every fiber of my being, it is intellectually, mentally satisfying as well. We don't abandon our minds in order to put our faith in Jesus Christ. That's what Thomas is saying also. Examine the evidence. Right? Move towards it. If you don't believe me because you don't, you don't know my uh, background or my pedigree, that's fine. Um, in, your, in your bulletin, the letter that I wrote, there's a bunch of books of people who are uh, more famous and smarter than me um, who doubted that this stuff was true. But as they began to do their research, they began to realize the only conclusion they could come up with is that Jesus Christ really did rise from the dead. I know, again, a lot of us may say, I, that's just still, that's a leap of faith. People just don't like rise from the dead. I give you that. I haven't seen it either. And probably none of us have. But if you read, if you kind of read through and, and just think through history, here's what um, a guy named Tim Keller, New York Times bestseller, wrote a book called The Reason for God. He said this, okay, I'll, I'll grant you the fact that people don't rise from the dead. But you can't simply say, I doubt the resurrection can be possible, right? If you doubt that, okay, that's okay to doubt that, he's saying. But if you doubt that, then at the same time, you have to give an intellectually credible reason for the events that happened after the supposed resurrection of Jesus Christ. Then. Because the reality is, after this supposed resurrection, which I believe and we believe to be true, after this resurrection, the world was never the same. Right? Individual lives were changed. Here, so N.T. Wright says that in the hundred years around Jesus' life, there were 15 Jewish people who said that they were the Messiah. And they started these movements, and people began to follow them. And as soon as they died, the movements died. The people went back and said, I guess he wasn't the Messiah. And then they went back to doing their own thing. Wasted some time, wasted some money, but life goes on. Fifteen people said, I am the Messiah. Rise and fall, movement dies. But this guy, Jesus Christ, claims to be the Messiah. He dies, but his movement doesn't die. It just, it just blows up, and it's taken over the world. Think about this, 11 cowering, fearful disciples, fearing their lives because the ones who killed Jesus might come after them next because he's, they're 11, 11 of his closest cronies. We're next. They're hiding in a corner in a house, scared to death. And then within weeks, they're out preaching to the very people saying, you killed Jesus, but he's the savior of the world and you need to repent or else your lives are doomed. And thousands of people coming to know Jesus. Think about that. Here's another way to see it. Eleven frayed, scaredy-cat disciples. Oh, my gosh, we're going to die. Eleven of these people. You're a betting man, betting woman. Eighty-five million strong in the Roman Empire. Greatest empire the world has ever known. Eighty-five million who, by the way, claim that Caesar is Lord versus eleven scaredy-cats who claim that Jesus is Lord. Eighty-five million against eleven. Eighty-five million against eleven. 
right? Who do you choose to win? Your betting person. You're an alien from Mars. You come down. 85 million Roman empires. They've got swords. They've got armor, all this stuff. And 11 people. They've got nothing. Unschooled, ordinary people. Just say, we, we saw someone rise from the dead. Who do you think wins? I'll tell you who wins. Within 300 years, this group of 11 people canvassed the Roman Empire, took it over, completely flipped it right side up, and they're continuing to do so today. Why? They say it's because we saw a dead man walking, and he's our Savior. And we look back at his words, and he said that this would happen. And 11 people flipped the world upside down, went from sadness to gladness, went from doom and gloom to life and joy, went from down in the dumps, our lives are over, we gave three and a half years, our time, our energy, we abandoned our families for this, and all of a sudden, here they go. They sell their possessions, give away everything that they've got, they stand boldly in the face of death, go to their grave for the sake of this king, testifying to the fact that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. How do you explain that? You can doubt the resurrection of Jesus Christ, but you have to give some kind of a credible explanation for why this movement didn't die, but it just took off and exploded and it spread throughout the ends of the earth as Jesus said it would when the power of God comes upon them. And we've got to examine the evidence. Not only that, Jewish people, their greatest law surrounded what we can and cannot do on the Sabbath. But their day of worship changed from the Sabbath to the first day, Sunday. Why? Because they said that's the day that the Lord Jesus rose from the dead and we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. They have worshiped moved from Saturday to Sunday in light of this fact. You can't change many things in a religious system. Especially can't change it overnight. Think about this. Jewish people believe that they're monotheistic people. One God and one God only. He's spirit. He lives up there. All of a sudden, here's this human being. Imagine this human being. Any of us. Take, pick any person here. walks around saying they're God. To them, that is not only blasphemous, but it goes contrary to this monotheistic ideal. There's one God, he's up there. How can he be here? How can he be visible? How can he die? And how can he die a cursed death on a cross? But overnight, they began worshiping this man, calling him God. Right? Somehow we have to account for that. We have to account for all of these changes. Blaise Pascal, French mathematician, philosopher, said, I believe the witnesses who got their throats cut out. At the end of the day, in 11, 10 of these 11 disciples were killed for their faith in Jesus Christ, testifying to the fact, they didn't just die natural death. Oh, you know what? We're uh, getting old and preaching the gospel and then we die. No, they were killed, literally killed with spears, with swords. They were hung, whatever it is, hung on a cross. They died, went to the grave for this reality that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. Christianity is not a blind leap of faith. In fact, I would venture to say that it takes more faith to doubt the claims of Scripture than it does to believe in the claims of Scripture when you lay it all out and you examine the evidence. The second thing, the last thing then, the last thing, we experience Jesus. Okay, so express our doubt, examine the evidence, and then experience Jesus. The last thing, um, Thomas says in verse 28, as he touches Jesus, he says, my Lord, my God. And he experiences the risen Lord, and I, I, want, I want to put out there today, that in the same way that Thomas had a real relationship with Jesus Christ, the Son of God who died for his sins and our sins and rose again, you and I can have the same relationship with Jesus Christ and we could experience him on a day-to-day basis. Right? Our lives have been changed. Lives have been changed because of this truth, because of this reality. And all he's saying is just take a small step of faith. Maybe you feel like, you know what, I can't take a step of faith 
Because I'm not like, I don't have faith like my friend who brought me here. I don't have faith like them. They've been going to church for all their lives. I've just, today's my first time, my third time, my fifth time. I can't believe like that. Jesus saying all it takes is just a, a small step of faith. That's all he's asking. Take a small step of faith. We begin to experience Jesus. Just a, a little step here. G, he, he, at one point, Jesus said all it needs is a mustard seed sized faith. That's like the tiniest seed. He says that's all you need. Why? Here, here's what he's saying. It's not how big your faith is that matters. It's where you put your faith. You know, like, as much as you, as much as you might believe that, hey, I believe I could fly. And I think if I put a Superman cape on me and I jump off the roof, I could fly. I really, really, really believe I could fly because I saw it in a comic book and then I saw it in a movie and I saw it on TV. As much as you believe that, you could believe with all of your heart that you could jump off the, the roof of this building and you could fly. I'm pretty sure. I'm about 100% sure that you'll jump off and then you'll, you'll fall to the ground. Maybe you'll die. You'll break some bones, definitely. What good is it to have a great deal of faith if it's not placed in the right place? If you have the tiniest bit of faith, and so here we are, you've never been on an airplane before. Like, I, how can something that heavy get off the ground and fly and take me from here to there? Can that really happen? And you're kicking and screaming. Here's your like grandparents and your parents are like, oh, come on, we've done this like millions of times. Just believe us. And like, no, 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 I don't want to go. You're kicking and screaming. And then they drag you. And so finally, you're like, I, this plane's going to crash and burn. It's like final destination. I saw the movie. We're going to die. We're all going to die. And so, but, but with, with kicking and screaming, you get on that plane. You've got like absolutely zero faith, but that one tiny step, that plane takes you from where you are to where you need to be. It's just the smallest amount of faith, but it was placed in the right place that allowed you to experience the journey from here to there. Here Jesus is saying, wherever you are today, you don't have to have great big faith. In fact, he was never looking for that. That all you need is a little bit of faith. Just place that in the right place. And just take a baby step of faith and say, look, I'm hopeless. Can you take me to hope? I'm depressed. Can you take me to joy? I'm addicted. Can you take me to freedom? I'm so lost. Can you help me to be found? I have no purpose in life. Can you help me find meaning? I have no idea who I am. I've slept with so many different people and they've all abandoned me. Can you give me identity? Can you tell me who I am? I don't know where I'm going when I die. Can you give me a hope? that goes beyond the grave. For 2,000 years, Jesus Christ has been changing lives. He's been doing that very thing I just talked about, taking people with a little bit of faith, taking them from where they are to where they need to be, where he wants them to be. He's still doing that today. Throughout every corner of the globe, he's doing it. In every continent, he's doing it. In every century, he's doing it. I'm here. Many of us are here because he's done that in our lives. In a few moments, you're going to hear people who are going to testify to how he's done that. He wants to do that in your life. That's why you're here today. It's not an accident that you're here. Today could be the day that changes your life forever. We experience Jesus when we come to church. You came today. Can I invite you to come out every Sunday and just explore and examine? Lives change in house churches. We're going to be meeting and outside, and you can find out more about them. 
They change at retreats. They change wherever we go. And they change every day because God's doing it. Take my broken marriage. Can you fix it? No problem. He rose from the dead. He can resurrect your marriage. He can resurrect your children. He can change your parents. He can give you hope. And it all takes just one step. In a second, I'm going to invite you and give you an opportunity to take that step. And maybe you'll take that, maybe you won't. It's completely up to you. But if you feel like God's calling you, the same way that he's calling Thomas, reaching out his hand, saying, will you take a step? Just take a step and come. And in the letter I wrote in your bulletin, at the bottom there's a prayer that you could pray if you want to give your life to Christ and, and trust him. And in the back, uh, you can fill out that form. I would love to meet with you and pray with you and talk to you about how your life can be changed. You can begin to continue this journey. You can judge the size of a ship by the size of the wake it leaves behind. Jesus Christ died for the sins of all mankind. And he rose again on the third day. Since that day, the rest of the world has never been the same. You can do that for you too.